What does it mean to be truly reformed or the importance of the regular principle of worship part two? And uh, this will actually be the better part. We're going to get to some real beef here, some real meat. The past is uh, what we just did was mainly historical. We're going to start getting to some good stuff here. I'm going to read from Matthew 15, <coughs> 1 to 3. And the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? And I'll stop there. Now we've come to a part that I've labeled avoiding common misunderstandings. Avoiding common misunderstandings. Because there's a lot of them. So we're going to help, it'll help us define things. In order to better understand the Reformed position, what is the real regular principle of worship, and avoid common misconceptions that are used to circumvent the genuine biblical, historic reform position, there are a few things about the regular principle that need clarification. First, the regular principle is broader than simply explicit commands. If you've ever read a good old G.I. Williamson, who was a good psalm singer back in the OPC days, and um, he had, he had a little booklet on the regular principle, and he, he really misdefined it. He said it's, it has to be an explicit command. No, it, it's broader than that. Explicit commands, do this in remembrance of me, sing psalms, etc. It extends to logical inferences from Scripture. Not simply commands, but logical inferences from Scripture. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, and I believe this is 1-6. Let me see what it says. 1-6. Yeah, 1-6. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing is to be added, at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit, that's alleged revelations of the Spirit, or traditions of men. <coughs> why do I say that? And why is it necessary? Well, those who attempt to refute the regular principle usually present a very false, narrow understanding of the principle. They want to make it appear unreasonable and undefendable. For example, Steve Slissel, Doug Wilson, and others. I forgot his name, but there was a, a seminary professor who wrote a book against the regular principle back in, uh, I think, the late 90s. Uh, and they all have the same argument. They've argued that the regular principle cannot be true because we find no explicit command in the Old Testament for the public worship in the synagogues. Uh, and that was one of Slissel's main arguments. He wrote a series of articles in the Calcedon Report. Yes, Christian Reconstructionists, the, the vast majority of them, are totally unfriendly to biblical worship. But such objections ignore logical inference or what the standards call good and necessary consequence. Although there was no explicit command saying, go worship at, to public worship on the synagogue, at the synagogue on the seventh day of the week, on the Sabbath, there are abundant logical inferences that prove this requirement. Number one, there is the establishment of the Sabbath day as a day of not only rest, but also worship. Leviticus 23, verse 3. Six days shall 
shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the solemn rest, a holy convocation. Now the word convocation, mikra, means a public meeting. Now because it's identified as a holy mikra, a holy public meeting, it refers to public worship. If the Sabbath day is a day for religious assembly to worship and honor Yahweh, then the use of local synagogues, which were equivalent to churches, is a rather obvious deduction. Right? Yeah, obviously. And number two, and this logical deduction is even recognized in Scripture. Psalm 74, 8 says, speaks of the meeting places of God in the land. In addition, in the book of Acts, James says this, 1521, for Moses had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city have being read in the synagogue every Sabbath. So do we need an explicit command? No, we do not. But there's certainly an abundant logical inference here. Good and necessary consequence or logical inferences also include approved historical examples from Scripture. When one finds the inspired apostles in the apostolic church always, always meeting for public worship on Sunday or the first day of the week, uh, Act, for example, Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 11, 18, 16, 2, Revelation 1, 10, etc. One does not need an explicit imperative to meet on Sunday. The fact that Jesus rose on the first day of the week, the eighth day, or the day which symbolized regeneration and the salvific recreation of the, of the whole world, also logically leads to the same conclusion. I'm just giving you examples. I'm not going to go, I, I have a book on this half and I go into all these theological reasons. It's, it's abundantly clear. <clears throat> One must obviously be very careful, exegetical, and theological when discussing good and necessary con consequence from Scripture. There's a great deal of difference between a studious, historical, grammatical, theological exegesis of the Bible and the, at times, highly speculative, creative, interpretive maximalism of James Jordan and his deluded followers. I just read a book on worship by Doug Wilson. It's a small book. And he says in there that the spear stabbing the sight of Jesus, out of which comes water and blood, that's proof of the birth of the church. Yeah, that's what he says. Now, I don't know if he got that from Jordan or he got that from uh, one of the church fathers. I, I read it and I take it, hey, here's proof that Jesus, because it says, I tell you this that you may believe. I, I take it that it's proof that he died. Water and blood. The blood had separated from the, the serum. You know, that's proof he died. But anyway, note also that worship practices arrived at by good necessary consequence are just as authoritative and binding as explicit commands of Scripture. I, I just bring that up very shortly. I'm done with it, but I just bring it up because if you read all these guys that rip the regular principle, say, well, it's not. It's just not workable. Well, that's because they present a very false, narrow understanding of it. <clears throat> Second, we need to clarify what is meant, carefully define what is meant by the circumstances of worship. For the twisting of this category has become the chief means of introducing human traditions into the church. It's the chief method for circumventing the regular principle and justifying human innovations and traditions in worship by the Dutch, uh, but Presbyterians. The Confession of Faith says this, 1-6, some circumstances concerning the worship of God, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. 
Now, why does it, the confession discuss circumstances of worship? Well, it does so because there are a number of things necessary to conduct a public worship service that are actually not a part of worship itself. One needs to pick a time and a place to meet. One must have chairs, lighting, heating, <coughs> cooling, and none of these things are part of worship. In fact, if a group of unbelievers meet to discuss pagan philosophy or politics, <coughs> they need to fulfill similar circumstances to conduct their meeting. Remember the phrase, common to human actions and societies. They need a building, chairs, lighting, a time to meet, a, a general time to end, parking, perhaps a, painted, uh, a printed program, etc. For a Christian, these things are done according to the general rules of Scripture and prudence. For the pagan, they are only done according to the light of nature and pragmatic considerations. When God has set aside a day to conduct public worship and made that day holy, that is, it's been set apart for a special holy use, then that day in the Old Covenant era would be Saturday of the seventh day, and the New Covenant era it's Sunday of the first day is not a mere circumstance of worship, right? God has made a command concerning it, and once God has made a regulation or a rule or a command, it's no longer a circumstance. It is received by divine revelation. But we're not told anything about the time to meet. That's left up to us. A time must be chosen using Christian prudence that best meets the needs of the congregation. You know, you got a group of farmers, they might want to meet at 7 a.m., but you got a group of young people, they might want to meet at 11 a.m. And the Old Testament musical accompaniment to worship, except the two trumpet blasts of announcement, did not come in to the church until the time of David. It was part of the new temple worship. The instruments used were designed by the Holy Spirit. They were given by special revelation. And only certain Levitical families could play specific instruments. I forgot to write down the passages. Only these, this family played the cymbals, this family played the lyre, this family played the canor. Therefore, musical accompaniment, because it's commanded by God, and God designed the specific image by the Holy Spirit, is not a mere circumstance of worship. It is regulated directly by written revelation. But the kind of seats one uses, or the color of the carpeting, are not aspects of worship and come are under the general guidance of Scripture. Okay, you don't want to choose carpeting that's so glaring, it's distracting. You wouldn't want to have psychedelic carpeting. One would want chairs that are comfortable. I'll never forget, I preached in a church up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, my wife remembers. It was a super old church that had these wooden seats, and people must have been smaller back then or something. But they were so tight, it was, it was super uncomfortable. <clears throat> Only the authority of God himself speaking in Scripture can provide the warrant that sets apart and makes an activity, ceremony, or element into a worship ordinance. 
If there is an Old Testament command and says, when you meet on the Sabbath, you have to sit in golden chairs. They have to be gold, then that would not be a circumstance anymore. True and acceptable worship is an act of faith and obedience to the specific requirements of Scripture, not human invention, not human innovation, or autonomy. As Jesus himself said, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, John 4.24. The point that the Westminster Confession is making is that we must make careful distinction between the authorized or commanded parts or elements of worship and things that are incidental to conducting a public worship service that are not discussed or specifically commanded in Scripture. And I think those things are quite clear. What people do, they invent something new, and they say, oh, well, this is a circumstance. The Lutherans and most modern corrupt Reformed churches have taken many things that are clearly aspects of worship, which are human in, in inventions or traditions, extra-biblical holy days, uninspired hymns, the use of organs and pianos, etc., and have arbitrarily declared them to be ad diaphora when they are not. And here's what John Owen says in his wonderful article in his uh, works. There are some things which men call circumstances that no way belong of themselves to the actions wherever they are said to be circumstances, nor do attend them, but are imposed on them or annexed to them by the arbitrary authority of those who take upon them to give orders and rules in such cases, such as to pray before an image or toward the east or to use that form of prayer in the gospel administrations and no other. He's talking about prayer books. These are not circumstances attending the nature of the thing itself, but are arbitrarily superadded to the things that are appointed. They are appointed to a company. End of quote. And what he's doing is refuting Episcopalianism, and it applies equally to Lutheranism, and it applies equally to modern Reformed churches, who do all sorts of things that have nothing to do with the worship of God, and simply arbitrarily say, "Well, this is offer, This is a circumstance of worship." That's how they do Christmas. Well, Jesus wasn't born in December. So not only have you made something up, you're lying. And here we come to the most critical part. Why the regular principle is necessary. Why is it necessary? And I'm just going to start this. I'll finish this later. A careful study of Scripture reveals a number of theological, biblical, logical, and practical reasons why the regular principle is necessary. We're not even going to get into exegesis of specific texts yet. We're going to be these are general theological reflections that, that where you can deduce the necessity. First, there is the nature and character of God. The God that we serve is infinitely holy and righteous. Because we are sinful creatures, even though we are saved by grace, we cannot honor, serve, and glorify God in any way we please. All of our worship activities must be strictly in alignment with the transcendent holiness and glory of Yahweh. This point is obvious in the sphere of ethics and sanctification, in that God himself defines what is good and evil, right and wrong. Consequently, we are justified by the blood and righteousness of Christ, and we are sanctified by the efficacy of Jesus' death and resurrection as we follow the revealed moral commandments of God. Okay, if you said, well, I have this wonderful tradition regarding how to be sanctified. 
we have to do this and this and this and this. And it has nothing to do with the Word of God. You'd say, that person's nuts. But people do this in worship all the time, and nobody even bats an eye at it. But in the, the field of ethics, it's quite clear. You would call that person a legalist. If men make up things that have nothing to do with God's moral law and believe that they can be sanctified, please the Lord, with their legalistic inventions, they're greatly mistaken. God's blessing can only come <coughs> with faith and obedience to his revealed will, not with our own inventions. After our justification, our growth and sanctification, and our worship through a faithful obedience to God's word is how we contri contribute to the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. Trust and obey, not trust and invent. Obviously, things outside of worship, there's there's much more latitude, obviously. you know, can, Am I going to grow tomatoes, beefsteak tomatoes, or cherry tomatoes? That's a matter of... Uh, Adiaphra. But we're talking about worship. <clears throat> if we create a system of man-made autonomous ethics and a highly creative system of human traditions and worship, <clears throat> we really are only building the kingdom of man. When we worship Yahweh as he is authorized in his word, we exhibit our faith in God's word and honor and give glory to the Lord who appointed that worship. We honor God by obeying him. We honor God by approaching him the way he is said to approach him. When we follow human traditions that originated in the mind of man, then we show our faith in man. Certainly you don't have faith in God, because God didn't command these things. We pay homage to sinful man and glorify him or them for their creativity. How wonderful. These, these wonderful inventions of the church traditions, how wonderful they are. And for this reason, those who are attracted to human inventions and traditions in worship usually have some kind of Romanist concept of church authority. And like I said, the Roman Catholics and the Episcopalians are very honest about this. Church leaders have the authority to make up rites and ceremonies. They have that authority. They can simply make them up, and you have to obey them, whether you want to or not, because they have that authority. It's an intrinsic authority. And what is that? That is tyranny. That's a violation of liberty of conscience. Liberty of conscience means that we have to obey what God's word says and we can't have the word of men imposed upon us. Consequently, as Reformed churches have corrupted the worship of God, they have also lost the, large, the, Reformed, lost the Reformed concept of church government and authority as purely ministerial and declarative, not creative, intrinsic, or legislative. That's why Presbyterianism, if it's functioning the way it's supposed to be, and sadly today it's not, um, everything is done by Scripture. Unfortunately today, that's not done very often because Presbyterians have become little dictators. And they do things in private and they, they don't follow Scripture a lot of the time, sadly. The regenerated heart wants to learn God's revealed will so that he can obey his Lord, grow in grace and covenant faithfulness. God, what have you told me to do? How can I obey you? Let me, let me obey. Let me follow your word. Covenant faithfulness. And you have covenant blessings. The sinful flesh seeks human autonomy in ethics and worship. I want to do what I want to do. I don't care what God says. That's the sinful flesh. So that he can be the master of his own ship and cling to his own will. 
And for this reason, Cain brought the fruit of the ground and not the shed blood of a sacrificial animal. We serve a God, that's Genesis 4, 3 to 5. We serve a God who is infinitely holy and very jealous. He will be worshipped as he commands or not at all. In fact, he rejects all will worship. Colossians 2. I forgot to write down the reference. Does not the creator of the universe have the right to be served and worshipped as he wills? Do we have the right to complain about this and cling to our own human traditions? If God is such a being as described in the Bible, then obviously it is his inalienable right to determine and prescribe how we serve, glorify, and worship him. It makes a lot of sense. It's obviously what scripture teaches. Yet people love their traditions. And I told the story, I when I first, my Christmas book came out in 1995. And um, I gave it to a uh, retired OPC minister who was an elder of an OPC church. He was in his late 70s. And he read it and he said, boy, that's a really good book. You've totally proven your case. And then he turned to me and he said, but I like Christmas. <laughs> and I said, well, I like Playboy. Do I get to read Playboy? Do I get to look at Playboy? No. Do we have the right to complain about this and cling to our own human traditions? Second, the fact that men are fallen, have a polluted heart or sinful nature, and are burdened with a noetic effect of sin disqualifies them from inventing forms of worship of an infinitely holy and righteous God. The point of special revelation is to give specific directions to men for man's duty, service, and worship. Because men, even believers, cannot be trusted to determine such things for themselves. Even Adam before the fall, before he had that corruption, still had to listen to God in the garden. Due to sin, men have a tendency to corrupt everything they touch. Especially things connected to worship. Consequently, we read God's word to Israel in Numbers 15, 39 to 40. And you shall have the tassel. That's that blue thing at the end of the, the four corners of your robe. That you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined. And that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for God. So the regular principle is rendered necessary by man's heart pollution and inner depravity. And if you know your church history, that is extremely obvious. One corruption after another. When men attempt to fashion their own elements or ordinances of worship, their inventions add corruption. Corruption. Their traditions choke out and subvert pure gospel worship. How do you think the Roman Catholic Church came into being? It didn't happen overnight. It took a thousand years of this edition and then this edition and this corruption and that corruption until it's the Church of Antichrist. This observation is strongly implied by Exodus 20, verse 25. 
and if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. Hewn stone means you take a stone and you chisel it and you make it nice and square so you can make a nice, beautiful fashioned altar. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. The symbolism here is not hard to discern. Yahweh wanted his people to worship him correctly, only as he has commanded, Deuteronomy 12.32. Therefore, the lesson of making an altar of stones, just as God had made them, taught the people that the worship of himself had to be based on a God-given command or requirement and must not involve human innovation, corruption, invention, or tradition. Don't wield a tool on it. It's got to be a stone just as I created it. God alone must determine how he is to be worshipped. For the moment men start adding their own ideas, they profane it. Because of God's infinite holiness, worship can only be rendered and accepted through Christ alone, based on God's word alone. Man's first step toward human autonomy and worship is always the first step toward a breach of the second commandment. I can't overemphasize enough the holiness of God. You're going to go visit the Queen of England. You're not going to go there in cutoffs and a t-shirt, a dirty t-shirt, smoking a cigarette, drinking a Budweiser with your hair all messed up and you're all smelly and filthy. There's a protocol. And God is infinitely holy. The word profane, by the way, means to pollute, defile, or corrupt. Here's what A. a. Hodge writes. Since man's moral nature is depraved and religious instincts perverted, and his relation to God reversed by sin, it is self-evident that an explicit positive revelation is necessary, not only to tell man that God will admit his worship at all, but also to prescribe the principles upon which and the methods in which that worship and service may be rendered. you got to do it solely through Jesus Christ. You have to have faith in Christ. You have to approach pray in the name of Christ. You have to worship God through Christ and his blood. And you have to do it solely as he has commanded in Scripture. And then third, the true worship of God must involve faith, and biblical faith must only be directed to Jesus Christ and his word. Worship is an act of piety. It's an act of faith. And an act of faith assumes that the object of faith is biblical. We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in Christ. We have faith in Christ's word. The worship of God is the obedience and response of faith. If scripture is not the sole rule of faith in the sphere of worship, then one's faith is directed to inventions, creations, and opinions of sinful men. For this reason, the Reformed scholars who wrote the Westminster Standards regarded violations of the regulative principle as violations of the second commandment. It is an unlawful honoring and exalting of man's creation, and thus is it, a, it is a species of idolatry. You have to worship the true God, the correct God, the only God. There is, besides him, there is no other. 
And you have to approach God solely in the way that he has authorized. You can't do it through a statue. You can't do it through man's imagination. It is obviously more subtle and refined than bowing before statues. But since it is fashioned in man's brain and is not commanded, it is will worship and superstition. You don't take a chisel and make yourself a statue, or you don't melt gold and make a statue. But you're making a statue in your mind. You're creating a form of worship in your mind that's an invention, and therefore it cannot properly be an object of faith. Worshiping God through autonomous mind creations is the foundation of all idolatry and corruption in the sphere of worship. It is a rebellious form of humanism, for the inventions of sinful creatures are placed on the same level and often even above what God himself has commanded. In fact, if you look at church history, the inventions of man, the, the traditions of men, drive out biblical worship and overshadow them. That passage I read by Jesus in Matthew 5, 1 to 3. And he goes, he, he goes on to explain, you've nullified the word of God by your traditions. Your traditions have displaced what you're supposed to do. You're doing what men told you to do instead of what God told you to do because of your traditions. And that's exactly what happens in worship. The typical Reformed church today, if they sing even one psalm in a worship service, and of course it's usually a gross paraphrase, uh, I'm surprised. Most don't sing any. And the Trinity hymnal has very few. And most of them are terrible, gross paraphrases. Here's what Thomas Boston says on the Second Commandment. <clears throat> He says the second commandment teaches, quote, Thou shalt not meddle to make anything of divine worship and ordinances out of thine own head. All holy ordinances and parts of worship, God has reserved the making of them for us, saying with respect to these, Thou shalt not make them to thyself. Men are said in Scripture to make a thing to themselves when they make it out of their own head, without the word of God for it. End of quote. That's his commentary on the Shorter Catechism. What does Paul say? Romans ten seventeen, Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Faith doesn't come by looking at the sunset or listening to the birds sing. How does the creations of sinful man in the sphere of worship proceed from biblical faith when the foundation is not the Bible but man's imagination or creation? Do you understand what I'm saying here? If somebody makes something up and says, I want you to do this, we're the elders, you have to do this, uh, and it has no basis on the word of God, you're placing your faith in your elders, not the Bible. And that's an idolatrous faith. That's a, that's a violation of liberty of conscience. How can we have assurance that our worship is lawful and pleasing to God when it is not commanded or authorized by Scripture? How can men lawfully impose such autonomous worship on the church when the source of it is not God or Scripture, but sinful men and their inventions? Did not Paul say that whatever is not of faith is sin? Romans 14.23 yeah, People take Christmas so lightly. You know, oh, come on. What's the big deal? Well, if, you, if, if it's not taught in Scripture... Paul says it's a sin. 
even aside from the fact that it comes from Romanism and paganism. And therefore it's a monument to idolatry. Are we not guilty of sin if we cooperate with and tolerate such human additions and traditions? Is not the imposing of such uh, man-made ideas on the church a form of ecclesiastical tyranny and a violation of our biblically informed conscience? Jesus set us free from the doctrines and commandments of men. Why then are men so quick to invent their own inventions? Their own impositions? You know, I know people that have, you know, they've been convinced of the regular principle, they've got involved in exclusive psalmody, which is what the Bible clearly teaches, and uh, biblical practices of the Reformation, which is the, most certainly the Presbyterian Reformation. The Dutch had the same thing. They declined afterwards and adopted the Holy Days, and they declined and allowed musical instruments. But the Presbyterians declined and allowed musical instruments as well. And they'll go to a Reformed church, and they'll go to the elders, and they'll start talking about the Westminster Standards and what the Reformers taught, what Calvin taught, and John Owen and the Puritans. And the elders will this has happened more than once. The elders will say, don't come back to our church. You're, we see you as somebody who's going to be divisive. Don't come back to our church. We don't want to hear this stuff. We have our, you know, I'm para, you know, we have our traditions. That's what they're thinking. We have our lovely traditions. Uh, don't make us uncomfortable. Don't rock the boat. We don't want to hear what the Bible says. And that's the state of the church today. Most of them. Like I said, if you're near a old-fashioned Presbyterian church that still obeys the covenants, that still obeys the Westminster standards, you're very fortunate. If you don't live one, near one, maybe you should move. It is sinful and foolish to submit oneself to such serious violations of Scripture, faith, and Christian liberty. Don't sing the hymns. Don't participate in corrupt worship. Don't go to a Christmas service. Don't go to an Easter service. Don't cooperate with corruption. Don't give it your blessing. When you participate in it, you're honoring sinful men. And you're directing your devotion to them, not to God, who didn't make up such stuff. Christians who invent their own modes of worship and cling to human traditions will respond that their inventions and traditions follow general teachings or principles of Scripture. I see this argument over and over again, and therefore are perfectly lawful. But we have seen that the regular principle requires specific proof, not vague generalities and equivocations. When somebody wants to get away from the specifics, and I haven't even touched on the scriptures that prove the regular principle yet, that's the strong part, but when people want to get away from specific passages and either resort to generalities, or as in the case of people like Doug Wilson and uh, Peter Lightheart and James Jordan, interpretive maximalism, uh, they're just not willing to be forthright and honest and deal with scripture as it is. The specifics flesh out and define the general. If you can't justify what you're doing by specifics and you have to resort to interpretive maximalism, which at times is nothing but scripture twisting and human invention, then you have a problem. 
and you're not being reformed. Look, I don't have a problem if people in the Presbyterian churches and the Reformed churches would be honest and say, we're going to go become Lutherans. We're going to go become Episcopalians. We don't believe in Presbyterian worship. We don't believe in what Calvin taught. We don't believe in the Reformation, the, the, the Calvinistic side of the Reformation. We don't believe in the regular principle of worship. Let's be honest. Let's go join an Episcopalian or a Lutheran church where we can have our sacramentalism, where we can have our interpretive maximalism and all this stuff. But they don't do that. They want to stay and they want to corrupt Presbyterians and they want to turn them into Episcopalians. They want to shift the church. They want the road to shift toward Rome or toward Constantinople. And that's a danger. So be aware. Be aware. James Jordan has taught some wonderful things and he's a very clever fellow. Doug Wilson's books on the family back in the 90s are wonderful. But his stuff on worship and his stuff on justification are dangerous and horrible. But we'll stop there. I've run out of material, but uh, I want to visit this in the future. I, I haven't preached on this in, since the 1990s, so I know you all here, everybody here knows this stuff, but uh, people need to be reminded of it and learn it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the direction of your word. Bend our hearts. Cause us to submit to it, even if we don't want to. Cause us to worship you through faith, solely through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for directing us in how to worship you in a way that pleases you, in a way that recognizes your infinite holiness and righteousness. Lord, we need a reformation among Reformed churches, not simply generally speaking, but among Reformed churches we need a reformation. Things are getting worse, not better, in most circles today. So help us. Bring reformation. In Jesus' name, amen.